0: Peace, power, and Prosperity Family. How we doing out there? Grand Rising to the multitude. Y'all already know what time it is. The Bitcoin Block Bully coming to you once again with an early rising crypto update. Um, This is going to be more of a build and a question um, asked whether Ether is the best model for money the world has ever seen. Um, And I believe that the gentleman David Hoffman is actually stating it as a fact. But I'm posing it as a question to the viewer and or listener of this video and or podcast for those that are going to be watching on the big Patreon page or those that are going to be listening in on the new Money Matrix podcast. Um, Grand Rising, everybody, once again, it is going on five minutes to five. Um, What is it? The 3rd of October, 2019. And I really wanted to get into this story and set the stage for individuals to really open their eyes to see what type of change is going on in the world as it relates to our monetary system as well as our banking system because if the monetary system changes, then, of course, the banking system has to change along with it. So just to get into the um, story, which I'm going to be reading verbatim, but also adding my own commentary along with it. Um, it goes on to state, Hello Defires and Happy Friday. Um, and this was actually released on the 20th of September. This is actually released on the 20th of September. So, um, a couple days old. But non- non- nonetheless, very, very um, revealing when it comes to how certain individuals look at some of these cryptocurrencies, which are also known as altcoins or alter- ulterior alteria. Alternative excuse me coins to the atom or the Genesis coin being Bitcoin, so it goes on to state that the the Defiant today published this latest column right here will guide you through how Ethereum is creating a new internet of value and help you visualize how each piece fits together with ether as the key gear making it all work. Um, they say, do yourself a favor and set more time aside because this is a must-read. So and it's going to take, it's probably going to be about an hour-long um, build as I've uh, read through it before. And, you know, just for me to go through it all and then, you know, research this, that, and the third, go back and forth. It took a little over an hour. So I know me breaking it down we should be close to 45 minutes to an hour. Let's see if we can get it, get it done a little bit quicker than that, though. Um, it goes on to state, defining Ether as an asset. An economic trifecta: bandwidth for permissionless, by David Hoffman. This article explores ether's role as an asset in Ethereum. Using data from the last two years of the Ethereum economy, I propose a novel definition for understanding ether, the asset, a bandwidth with uh, for permissionless inside of Ethereum. This article summarizes in two paragraphs. Ethereum is a foundation for building an alternative internet-based financial system, and this financial system has the capacity to be completely open and trustless. Now, once again, as we talk about the evolution of money itself, as I said, if the monetary system changes, so does the banking system, and all that is encased in the quote-unquote financial system. So, they are talking about an alternative internet-based financial system, which is going to change the face of... You know, the first two systems that we talked about, period, the monetary and the banking system, which is one and the same if you look at it, Um, though they do have their differences. Uh, This new financial system needs a native money to operate. Financial applications in this new landscape need a trustless form of collateral for their operation, and the only trustless asset on Ethereum is Ether. As a result of this demand, Ether has become an economic trifecta, a triple-point asset satisfying all the requirements that a new economy needs all at once. As a result of this, Ether has become the best model for money the world has ever come up with. So, we're going to run through the article and see if there's some agreements we can come to. Um, it goes on to state, there are two assumptions in this analysis of Ether and Ethereum. And I want individuals that may be new to the space to understand that Ether, Ethereum, they are two totally different... Um products in definition and functionality whereas ethereum is pretty much the blockchain or network that the currency or altcoin either runs on you see what i mean so and it's much like bitcoin never before have we had money and the means to send it all in one one um one gumball or or, or or one functionality, should I say. To whereas as when you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin, even though blockchain is the system it runs on, Bitcoin itself is the funds and the means of sending those funds, if you look at it. So, interesting um, paradigm that we're, that we're entering here. So, this goes on to say that the two assumptions in this analysis of Ether and Ethereum are, one, Ethereum 2.0 has enabled ETH staking, which means that Ethereum is go, excuse me, ETH is going to go from being a mineable cryptocurrency, meaning it takes a certain amount of computational power in order to create or receive, um, well, yeah, create more, back up the blockchain, to a point where it's just going to be those that are holding a certain amount of Ether in their wallets that are going to help back up and maintain the blockchain. And they should still receive the reward as it is... um. Defining whatever type of system they're gonna have for releasing of it. And then they got EIP 50, 1559 has been implemented, which burns ETH in transactions. So it's almost a sense of cutting back on the inflation to whereas when you send Ethereum, it burns excuse me, when you send ETH, it burns it in the process. So it's almost like how the Federal Reserve, you know, in a cycle burns Federal Reserve notes. I guess in order to keep from inflation, though, over the last couple of weeks, I want to say, we've actually pumped, how much money? $750 billion, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Into the uh, Let me see if I can find the story. Let me see. How much have we pumped lately? The Fed's pumped another $75 billion in the financial markets. Here we go. Continuing capital injection plan. The Federal Reserve on Wednesday sold another $75 billion in market repurchase agreements or repos in a continued effort to claim money markets and bring interest rates within its intended target. So, yeah, $75 billion was just pumped into the market. So, um, anyway, going on, part one, defining Ethereum. Before we define Ether, we need to define Ethereum. Ether will be defined by how Ethereum is used. Defining Ethereum has been difficult. Um, attempting to define Ethereum feels a bit like defining the Internet in the 80s. No one really knows what, it is com- what is coming. The cool thing about open source technology is that the use and application of the technology evolves and emerges as the company builds and discovers its use case. Applications define the Internet, and if you ask Google to define it, the Internet will give you this answer. It is a global computer network. providing a variety of information and communication facilities and consisting of interconnected networks using standardized communication protocol. Personally, I don't think this definition is helpful. It is technically right, but it's a definition meant for the technically minded. If you were to ask how is the Internet or how does the Internet impact humanity, we need to look at what we are doing on the Internet 99% of the time and that's a good question what do you utilize this supercomputer for 99% of the time which you basically have which we may state that the world has never had before though I do think a lot of technology is remakes of old ancient technology um as a side note I also think that the internet was discovered and not so much created so you know just my own personal opinions on certain things Anyways, when we look at what we're doing with it 99% of the time, are we utilizing it to its fullest extent? Or are we pretty much playing with the universe at our fingertips? And they're saying that it brings us to a couple of different things. So we have Facebook, um, the likes of Instagram, Google, YouTube, Wikipedia, Netflix, um, just to name a few. The internet is a stack of different technologies with the application at the top. While the internet cannot exist without any one part of the stack, it is the application layer of the internet that defines how the internet meaningfully impacts our lives. All the layers below the application layer are a means to an end, and that is to provide products and services to people. So, you see you have the conglomerate, for those that are able to see, of a basket of Facebook, Google, Netflix, GitHub. Or, no, that's Reddit, excuse me, um, Instagram, Wikipedia. And it goes to a HTTP, so if you ever look at certain websites that you're on, you're actually not so much www. Dot, but it's HTTP, um, semicolon, no, colon, if I'm not mistaken, forward slash, forward slash, then you get the rest of it. Um, but you have the interface layer, then the application layer, transport layer, network layer, link layer, then you have the hardware, hardware layer. Now, the missing layer is the value. The innovation behind the internet was to make data cheap, available, and infinitely copiable. Copiable, Now, copyable is a word that means it should be able to be... Oh, hold on. Wrong button. Let me cancel that. I want to actually search this word up. So we can get a copyable. Um, And it's able to be copied, especially legitimately photocopied. So they're looking for... Um, what they're telling you is that the innovation behind the internet was to make it cheap, available, and able to be copied. The innovation opened up the world to abundant and cheap information, and humanity is better because of it. However, cheap, available copyable is the opposite of what money and value is right money and value is by definition scarce expensive and difficult to access when bitcoin solved the internet's double spend problem problem it achieved creating internet scarcity for the first time ever when you sent something on the internet you could no longer keep it yourself however with bitcoin this is only true if you are standing bitcoins. The bitcoin protocol only provides scarcity to bitcoins, nothing else. This is where Ethereum comes in. In a platform for providing digital scarcity for any digital asset, right? Ethereum gives the power of digital scarcity to more than just its own native currency. Because of Ethereum, digital scarcity can be made for any asset found on its platform. Tokenization in the ERC-20 standard is the printing press for digital scarcity? As a result, Ethereum has become the digital agnostic settlement layer for the internet. Because of its permissionless and openness, any asset can become can come to Ethereum and use it for management of its scarcity and settlement between parties. So we've already said a mouthful, and we're not even a quarter way through the um through the, the actual article. It goes on to state, Ethereum exists as a new layer of the Internet, a new layer of the Internet. It uses the communication protocols below it to create a new network that defines how digital value is managed. Right. Ethereum is the value layer of the Internet, which is what they're stating. If you go to Ethereum.org, you will find the following definition for Ethereum. It will tell you that Ethereum is a global, open source platform for decentralized applications. For those that know, don't know what decentralized applications are, they're applications that run on a decentralized um, web, meaning there is no central c- control point of control of said application. Um, because goes on to state on Ethereum. You can write code that controls digital value, runs exactly as programmed, and is a, is accessible anywhere in the world. The application on the internet defined what the internet is. Likewise, applications on Ethereum would define what Ethereum is. So we got Ethereum's application layer. The revolution of Ethereum is the establishment of a new application layer on the internet. The internet of Web two. Pay attention is the internet of centralized databases and centralized data. Facebook, Google, Amazon, and their products represent the big applications of Web 2.0. Ethereum provides an alternative, a new layer, a value layer that allows for new applications. While the internet of Web 2.0 is saturated and dominated by gargantuans, Web 3.0 provides an unclaimed landscape of potential value applications. The final application found on top of Ethereum have begun to dominate its application landscape. Now, this is led by MakerDAO and the establishment of permissionless stability by DAI, which is a stable back cryptocurrency that is created, minted, they say, or could be the equivalent of printed on the MakerDAO system from the collateralization of the Ether token used as the collateralized value, much as gold or um, a title to a vehicle or a deed to a house can be used as collateral. Anyway, Ethereum's permissionless financial network has exploded. Open finance on Ethereum has begun to lock in Ethereum as a global value settlement platform. The open finance movement that started as a curiosity in 2018 has erupted into what is perhaps Ethereum's main purpose, which is a network for permissionless financial applications and services. Ethereum's open-source finance landscape spawns horizontally across across its Internet of Value. Each application is able to be composable with others, generating endless permutations ah, permutations, transactions uh, between each app. Let me see if they use this word correctly. I don't think that it was used correctly. Let me see. A way, especially one of several possible variations in which a set of number or things can be ordered or arranged. And they're saying that Ethereum, um, each application is able to be composable with others, generating endless permutations, transactions, permission. I don't think they use permutations, transactions between each app. It just seems, uh, irregularly, erroneously used. However, Ethereum is not a flat landscape. Financial systems and economies are inherently ratified. Excuse me, stratified. And Ethereum is no exception. Once again, just so we have an understanding. We don't have stratified, which is to form or arrange in strata. Arrange or classify. So... Financial systems and economies are inherently able to be arranged and classified, and Ethereum is no exception. Now, you see how just knowing the definition see how to, uh, just knowing the definition of a word opens up the total overall sentence in which the word was used, whereas you're just running over it and you're like, eh, it really doesn't matter what the word may or may not have uh, meant. It's best to, in my opinion, uh, a good exercise is to look up and define every word you come across that you may not be knowledgeable or familiar with. It'll help you in your comprehension of certain documentations or anything that may be read by the eye that you may not have noticed at one time. Anyways, continuing on with the article. With the base blockchain at the bottom, Ethereum's applications have stratified themselves in a way that maps on to the legacy financial system. The money is always at the base of every financial system. Gold is a great permissionless store of value money. Except. That it is heavy, tangible, and capturable. 90% of the world's gold supply has been captured by central banks. And the financial products and services below these central banks have all been regulated to fiat money. Because of the capturability of gold, each financial layer under the Federal Reserve must ask permission to the layer above it. Because it's the layer above it that has the money. So, if we look at the pyramid for those that are able to and will be watching this on the big uh, Patreon page, you can see at the top of the pyramid you have gold, which is trustless. And then at the bottom of the pyramid you have bi- people, excuse me, which above them you have businesses. Now, people must ask the businesses for permission to do certain things. The businesses above them you have certain companies um, stated Square, Visa, PayPal, Venmo, MasterCard, Apple Pay. And the businesses have to ask them for permission. Now, these entities, Visa, PayPal, and MasterCard, then above them you have, which they have to ask permission from, is Chase, Citi, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan. And then above them, you have the Federal Reserve, which they must ask permission. And then above the Federal Reserve, you have the Trustless Gold. Which is just at the uh, forefront of all this and is just helpless and has nothing to do with anything other than being what individuals choose to use as a store of value and an exchange of value. Now on the other hand you have what is a mirror image of the prior um, pyramid which is upside down having ether being the gold in this sense at the bottom or upside down at the tip of the pyramid. Which is permissionless um, store, a uh, permissionless store of value. Excuse me. And then above that, you have the permissionless reserve bank, which is Maker, MakerDAO. And then above MakerDAO, you have a permissionless lending and borrowing services, DYDX, Cyber Network Compound. And then above that, you have permissionless financial applications. And remember, everything is permissionless. You don't have to ask permission to use any of this. UMA, POA, Uniswap, Augur. Above that, you have the permissionless bank accounts, being Deserion, um, Trustless Banking, Instadap, and Argent. And then above that, you have the permissionless world, being Decentraland, Gitcoin, Haven, Nexus Mutual, which is um, decentralized insurance for smart contracts. Now... This hopefully illustrates the role of permissionless, programmable store of value money at the bottom of a new alternative financial stack. Gold is permissionless, and so is Bitcoin. But if the systems that leverage the value of these assets aren't permissionless, then over time, they can capture the asset and generate a permission system in which rent-seeking is enabled, stitching it together. If you believe in my illustration of Ethereum thus far, Here's how I define it, and this is the uh, individual David Hoffman. Ethereum is the Internet of Value, the Internet-native global settlement layer for digital assets, and a landscape of permissionless financial applications which together support a permissionless economy. Now we're getting into part two, defining Ether. Ether as an asset has been difficult to pin down. The maximal flexibility offered by a Turing complete blockchain, Ethereum, um, means that Ether can truly do anything. This makes defining it inside the scope of other asset classes kind of difficult. In order to define Ether as an asset, we first need to understand what asset classes are. And I'm actually happy that they're getting into this because this is, you know, more so information for the individual that may not have before listening to this um, Build, know what the actual asset class are, and' sad to say that a lot of individuals do not know the difference between liabilities and asset, whereas we treat liabilities, material items as an asset when in all actuality, they do not gain and will not gain in value other than within the mind of you know, certain individuals, but not as on a um, larger storefront, I guess you can say. It goes on the state, defining asset classes. So, you have the placeholder, which are equities, bonds, income-producing real estate, physical commodities, which grains are grains or energy products, precious metals, gold, silver, currency, and fine art. Um, you have capital assets, which are ongoing sources of something of value, valued on the basis of net present value of its expected returns. So, you have equities, bonds, and introducing real estate. Um, nothing else fits under that category. Next you have consumable and transformable assets, you can consume it, you can transform it into another asset, it does have economic value, but it does not yield an ongoing stream of value, and none of that you have physical commodities and precious metals. Next you have a store of value asset, which cannot be consumed, nor can it generate income, nevertheless it has store, it's, nevertheless it has value and it is a store of value asset. And under this, you have income-producing real estate, Um, not commodities, but you do have precious metals. You have currency. You have fine art. Now, capital assets. Assets that are productive, produce an ongoing source of value, and generate value, money, or cash flow. Examples include equities, bonds, rentable real estate, taxi medallions, um, an asset that in some way enables cash for the owner, cash flow for the owner. Then you had transformable consumable assets. You can consume and burn it, uh, one-time use. You can transform it into another asset, and its consumption produces economic yield. Examples include gold, oil, commodities, wheat, coffee, or energy. These types of assets are generally used in industry to produce some sort of outcome that is economically beneficial. Think about the gold plating in electronics, the gasoline in a car, or the coffee beans in a coffee machine. Next, you have store value assets which cannot be consumed. Value persists across time and space and is scarce. Examples include gold, currencies, real estate, art, or bitcoins. Now this is the most simple asset class, but perhaps the most important. These types of assets must be scarce and hard to produce, duplicate, or copy. They should be desired or desirable ambiguously across the globe. And I want to stop and check real quick, get a definition on ubiquitous elite. Let's search. So ubiquitous is present, appearing, or found everywhere. Um so it must be desirable everywhere across the globe. Um they are the assets that benefit from global trust in the perceived value of assets. When we discuss monetary premium, we are discussing store of value assets. So anytime you hear monetary premium, or within this article, they're discussing the store of value assets. You may have noticed that some assets fall into more than one category. Real estate properties are great stores of value and can also rent them you can also rent them to generate cash flows. Likewise, gold is an important component in industry products due to its ability to carry electric electrical signals and resistance to decay. It also has been the greatest store of value asset humanity has ever seen. And they're stating in the article until now, they're saying that ether has all three asset classes, ether fits perfectly into all three asset classes, depending on the context Ether can be operating as any three of the other, excuse me, above asset classes, and even all three at once. So, Ether is a capital asset. In this capital asset form, Ether is a share in the Ethereum network, a claim on Ethereum's fees, and the right to produce work for Ethereum. Pay attention, this is, I believe, in the event that we do um, start the staking process, as far as I'm saying that you're able to claim on the Ethereum's network with Ether. Um, then the right to produce work for Ethereum, meaning that you need Ether in order to create on the Ethereum blockchain. This is one of the biggest use cases that I uh, speak on. So a share in Ethereum. The Ethereum network is a decentralized institution. The Ethereum network produces products and services for its internet of value. In an attempt to grow its network, grow its users and capture more value the better products and services it creates, MakerDAO, Compound, DYDX, and Augur, the most customers there are for Ethereum. Ethereum's customers are both the applications found on top of it as well as the users of these applications. A claim on Ethereum's fees. There's going on to state that in order to keep the network running, Ethereum needs to pay its workers. These workers come in the form of validators, those that make sure that all user customers are playing by the terms of service of Ethereum. Ethereum's TOS follows the rules of uh, Ethereum Machine, and Don't Double Spin, or EVM. These fees are paid to the workers for their labor, but also act as a wall that protects Ethereum. The height of the wall is correlated with the total fees produced by the network. The height of the wall is the cost of attacking Ethereum. And next you have the right to produce work. Owning Ethereum is owning the right to produce work and collect the fees of Ethereum. Ether is the mechanism for ensuring incentive alignment between the Ethereum network and its workers. All workers must own ETH in order to provide work for Ethereum. If you want to be an employee of the Ethereum network and be paid for your services, you must own ETH to make sure that you are aligned within the network. These are the components of Ether that will make it a capital asset. When staked, ETH is a product asset for its owner. Ether products more produces more of itself for the owner that stakes it and does work for Ethereum. The current ETH 2.0 spec has an issuance schedule that is dynamic. Fewer total ETH stakers mean that ETH stakers are paid comparatively more. This is to incentivize more ETH stakers to come and provide work or security to Ethereum. When more ETH stakers stake their ETH, Ethereum pays each staker less. As more total security is being provided, and therefore, future security is not as needed. Here is an capital asset return rate based on different numbers of ETH being staked. At the sought-after 10 million staking rate, ETH stakers will receive 5.72 yearly returns of the Ethereum. And this is not in dollar amount, but in actual Ethereum amount. So, um, basically, for every one, you'll get 5.72% uh 5.72 ETH, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken. If I'm, um, no, that wouldn't be. That'd be because you get 5% of that. Let's see. ETH validating a million max annual issuance is 181.19. Max annual issuance is 0.17. Max annual return rate for validators is 18.10%. Um, it goes on to say, however, that's not the only way the ETH takers are paid. The above return rate is just for the new Ether issuance. Each stakers also receive a portion of the fees paid to the network. Here are Ethereum's top paying user customers on September 18th. The ETH collected are added on top of the network issuance and paid to the uh, workers of Ethereum. And they got a uh, a diagram showing fair win, ETH spent 3.31K, average GUI 14, and USD value was $616,000. Ether is a consumable, transformable asset. Consumable, transformable assets come in many forms. The most apparent asset in this class isn't one particular asset class, but rather a number of assets that produce this thing that is, energy. Energy is a consumable asset that we all use to transform things into the world around us. Energy is how raw earth ore turns into the steel insides of a skyscraper or the frame of a car. Energy is how elevators move people to their office and how we transact and do business on our computer and phones. It is the power behind cargo ships, creating worldwide commerce. It is the heart in our ovens that turn raw food into eligible meals. Imagine a world without energy. Energy makes the world go round. Without energy, we would not be able to turn useless things into useful things. This demand for an energy substrat is what gives oil its global value. While electric cars are a hot topic, And why batteries are so damn expensive. Energy is the economic substrat that powers the world economy. Ether is the economic substrat for the internet. Hmm. Ether's original definition, gas for Ethereum, illustrates this well. The consumption of Ether is the cost of turning the economic wheels inside of Ethereum. Anytime any activity is done, Ether is consumed. And this is the gas fees that I speak on in the contracting that you do. Anytime you do anything on an Ethereum network, it is a contract, a smart contract. Anytime an asset is moved, a loan is generated, an exchange is made, a purchase is executed, or a DAO is started, Ether is consumed. So Ether is a store of value asset. If you've paid attention to the ETH locked in DeFi or decentralized Finance metric, you're paying attention to ETH as a store of value asset. Being locked is referring to how it is being used as collateral for something. It wouldn't be locked if it didn't have a commitment to act as a store of value that backs some sort of agreement, contract, asset on the Ethereum network. Right um, At the time of this publication, there was a total of 2.2 million Ethereum locked up, up with maker dominance having 55.16% of that. Ether, as its permissionless global asset, is the vehicle for generating permissionless financial institutions on Ethereum. We call these permissionless financial institutions dApps. and the economic network, they create DeFi or open finance. If Ether wasn't permissionless or if these open finance applications on Ethereum ran on permissionless collateral, such as centralized stablecoins or tokenized gold, then they wouldn't be fully permissionless systems. We would have to trust in the centralized institutions that issue the on-chain assets, that their off-chain assets are legit, and that they will honor all redeemability. Thankfully, Ether is permissionless, so we don't have this problem. If we use Ether as collateral inside of DeFi, which is is just open finance, getting into Ethereum's first dApp, MakerDAO, not first, as in first-in-time, first as in the first order of operations. MakerDAO is crucial to the development of open finance on Ethereum. Stability is crucial for finance, and without a stable reference point to Ether, many of the financial applications on Ethereum simply, would be, would be able to, um, simply wouldn't be able to operate. Platforms like Compound, DYDX, or SET Protocol all require a stable currency in order for their applications to function. There are plenty of stablecoins on Ethereum, but there is only one permissionless die. Excuse me, it's permissionless one. DAI is the only native stablecoin on Ethereum, and it achieves the nativity by being backed by the only trustless asset on Ethereum, Ether. On the permission side, you have USDT, USDC, BUSD, Gemini Dollars, um, Tether which are all stable back, back cryptocurrencies, which are actually pegged one-to-one to the dollar, but actually backed by a certain amount of Federal Reserve notes somewhere in a reserve. And then on the right side, you have permissionless dollars, which is the DAI dollar. DAI achieves its value by the store-of-value function of Ether, as well as it achieves its permissionless value from its over-collateralization. Ether is what makes DAI permissionless. Permissionless stability enables permissionless finance. Having a permissionless stablecoin is really important. And just to give you sort of an a idea of how this make or die system works with the die stablecoin, it's pretty much, let's think back to a time when money or notes were actually backed by gold or silver. You would turn in a certain amount of gold or silver, collateralize it, and then you would be issued a certain amount of gold or silver certificates, Correct. And then once upon turning in those gold or silver certificates, you would then get this gold or silver back. Um, But it's the actual gold or silver that's backing the note or the certificate that you're utilizing. So much like this system where you must be over collateralized in, in order to print die dollars or mint in this sense, since it's all digital. For however much amount of the we'll call asset, I didn't want to say physical asset, but however much the asset is worth, That'd be how much gold they would then receive. Or how much um, die, die dollars or the notes that they would receive as it relates to the amount of collateral that they hold. So um, it goes on to state, having per- a permissionless stable coin is really important. In addition to providing a stable foundation to build finance upon, if you want the financial structures on top of that foundation to be permissionless, You need that foundation to be permissionless. If DeFi all ran on USDC, we would all be trusting Circle with their management of our funds. DAI is the only stablecoin that cannot be removed, revoked, burned from a user's wallet via essential authority. True sovereign power. This is why open finance applications can get assurances when building their application with DAI. If DAI runs in their application, no central party... Can remove it. And then below that you do have the pyramid, upside down pyramid once again. Um, next we have um all this is based off ether. Next we're getting into compound finance, which is a money market application. Um, compound finance is the borrowing and lending application for Ethereum. It's a financial primitive and a crucial component in the financial stack of Ethereum. Compound is an application that pulls borrowers and lenders together. And matches the demand and supply of each party with a variable interest rate. This produces the die borrow rate and die supply rate, or the cost of borrowing die and the internet received from lending die. You can check rates at loansquare.io. Below that, Hmm. interesting. Um, This product. This produces the die borrow rate and die supply rate right, rate, or the cost of borrowing die and their interest received from lending die, and you can check out loanscan.io just to see the stats on that. Compound is trustless because of collateral. Collateral is what makes compound a permissionless platform. Borrowers must over collateralize their loan in order for lenders to be given assurances that there is always money in the bank for them to withdraw. In other words, trustlessness. Um. Now, the discrepancy between ETH locked and the total value locked is a bunch of REP being used as collateral if you're looking at um, an account that has Ethereum, um, REP, what other coins do they allow you to um, collateralize, WBTC, USDC, and a number of other different cryptocurrencies. Now, the vast majority of collateral and compound is Ether. Borrowers are locking up ETH to be collateral for their loan. Um, ETH is being used as a store of value asset, an asset that is perceived by the market to hold its value across time, as the collateral for a permissionless loan. This permissionless collateral is what powers the Ethereum side, excuse me, the lending side of Compound, as the Compound application ensures over-collateralization and under. Pay attention. Hmm. over-collateralization and auto-liquidation, excuse me, of the uh, collateral from borrowers. Once again, this permissionless collateral is what powers the lending side of Compound. It's the Compound application that ensures over-collateralization and auto-liquidation of the collateral from borrowers, lenders don't have to trust the borrowers. The Compound application removes trust from the equation. Compound does this by using either a store of value, and using Ether's programmability to enable trust-removed borrowing lending. So one is able to borrow and or lend in a trustless matter without permission. So no ID, no social security, no age limit, just the ability to utilize the Internet and a smart device. Now, DYDX is a platform for margin trading. Margin trading is where you're u- able to utilize um more funds than you yourself have put up. So let's just say you're using... 3x margin and you have, um, 100 USD dollar equivalent of an asset that you want to trade, then you're able to multiply that times 3 and trade with $300 worth of an asset. Being that the platform is going to front you $200 in order to trade with, but, um, that's, that's, um, pretty much more so for advanced users. But anyways, it goes on to state that DYDX runs on smart contracts on the Ethereum and allows users to trade with no intermediaries. DYDX provides the services to users by requiring a store of value collateral in order to borrow or trade on margin. The collateral could theoretically be anything and DYDX has enabled USDC as collateral. However, as you can see in the chart below, the vast majority of collateral inside of DYDX is Ether. Ether is the primary store of value collateral that's used in DYDX. The combination of DYDX smart contracts and a permissionless SOV programmable asset like ETH enable DYDX permissionless and trustless financial application. Next we have uh, Uniswap. Same pattern holds true for the Uniswap exchange. Uniswap exchange operates by having two pools of collateral for any token pair. And version one of Uniswap, all token pairs of V1, all token pair trades against store value ether. It's Ether's role as a store of value that makes it such a great collateral for all other token trading pairs to trade against. In version two of Uniswap, maybe by the end of 2019, Uniswap will enable any token in any token trading pairs. And I'm willing to be the most I'm will, and I'm willing to be the next most used collateral will be die. Uh, I'm willing to bet the next most used collateral will be die. Ether is stable form. I could almost agree with that. Ether is a store of value for open finance. Ten years after their inception, only one use case for blockchain has been discovered. The permissionless management of value across the internet. Open finance. Is a new fertile landscape for new financial insti- institutions. In the open landscape, in the open finance landscape, institutions are autonomous, humanless contracts on Ethereum, and from what we can see so far in DeFi. They use Ether as the underlying store of value asset for their application. So, while well, I expect further assets to be able to come to Open Finance and act as collateral, collateralized stablecoin, gold and vaults, securities, treasuries, etc., I accept Ether and DAI will remain a significant majority of collateral for Open Finance applications. Open Finance, if Open Finance applications use off chain trustless assets, then they are acting as a hybrid Open Finance application with trusted assets. Which is fine, but it's not as cool as fully trustless. Fully permissionless applications that leverage trustless ETH and DAI. Ether, the triple point asset. And we are going on at current time, um, New Money Matrix podcast recording. Actually 44 minutes and 44 seconds to the T right now. Um, Getting into the last section of this article. Depending on the context. Ether acts as any of the three major asset superclasses. Staked ETH will be the the capital asset. Consumed ETH will be the consumable or transformable asset. And Ether locked in DeFi will be the store of value ETH. Um, Ether is the first asset to ever transcend all three asset classes that I know of, which is as the article states. That is great for Ether. Money is something that is by definition flexible. Money is what you need it to be when you need it to be that thing. It either fits into all three major frameworks for what a value asset should be. <coughs> and it covers all three. Capital asset, consumable, transformable asset, and a store of value asset. The story doesn't end there. The triple point is a reference to thermodynamics. In dynamics, the triple point of a substance is the temperature and pressure at which three phases, the three phases and solid of that substance coexist in thermodynamic equilibrium. So that's almost like you putting an ice cube into a um, pan on a stove, seeing it melt halfway through, seeing steam come up, right, which is the gas form, seeing it melt or the water start to form, which is the liquid form, and then still having half the ice cube there, which is having it in the solid form. So you have a thermodynamic um triple point of the um what would be H2O itself. So uh phases of matter are usually distinct either you're a solid, liquid or a gas. However, if things are balanced just right, you can enter that triple point where all three phases coexist at once. Interesting. Now we got superfluid collateral and open finance. What happens when collateral becomes liquid? This article illustrates the fluidity of collateral inside of the open finance applications on Ethereum. Um, and let's see. Ether is used as a store of value inside MakerDAO to produce DAI. Ether and DAI are used as collateral on Uniswap and to produce the Uniswap pool share token. This new ERC-20 has the value of one part ETH, one part DAI, which are the native store of value assets in Ethereum. Use this new store of value token inside Compound as collateral for a loan. The main point made in this article is ether is locked inside of uniswap, generating a new token that represents its value, which is then re-locked inside of compound. The same ether that is collateral for uniswap is used as collateral for compound. Now let's put this into the asset definition as we have defined above. The store value of ETH was put in the maker to produce DAI. The store value die plus ETH will put in the uniswap to produce the uniswap pool share token. The uniswap pool share token is an asset that is both a store value and a capital asset. Uniswap pool share tokens are collateralized by the assets that back them, but they also receive fees for the volume of the exchange they back. Now, the Uniswap exchange charges 0.3% on fees. This means that the Uniswap pool share token increases in value as it collects fees from Uniswap. <laughs> so the Uniswap share tokens are therefore both the store value asset and capital assets at the same damn time. Let's keep it going. The new token, which is both a store of value and a capital asset, is deposited into Compound as a collateral for a loan. It is now acting as a store of value asset that backs the loan. So, it's a store of value, which is ETH plus die, that backs the Uniswap pool share token, which is the store of value plus the capital asset, that backs the Compound loan, which is a store of value plus capital asset multiplied by a store of value. Theoretically, this could be done as lending tool and Compound rather than a borrowing tool. If you replace step four with a new step, you get step four. You allow Uniswap pool share token to be borrowed in Compound and receive instant interest payments dominated in Uniswap pool share tokens from the borrowers. So now we have a store of value plus capital asset that is being lent out and collecting fees, making it as a store of value plus cl- cl- uh, capital asset multiplied by a capital asset. This whole process requires eight total transactions. Every time economic activity occurs on Ethereum, Ether is consumed. While Ether was being transformed into one permutation of a capital plus store of value asset, Ether is being consumed as the economic substrat of Ethereum. So you see how everything ties into one? In other words, Ether is operating as this hybrid store of value capital asset while Ether is also being consumed to pay for the transformation of the plain old ETH into the compound loan that's collateralized by the Uniswap pool share token. And I know a lot of this is like probably, man, rambling off in the brain got a lot of individuals' brains or, 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 or minds hurt. Um, but push on. Listen to this once, twice. They usually say you don't understand something that you hear or read until you've read it or heard it seven times. Keep that in mind. Now, why is this significant? Ether is the first asset in history to operate as all three asset types at once. Why this is neat and what does this mean? This model secures the US economy. Interesting. And family, we only get this chance once in a couple of hundred years where you see a system like this reset, rewritten, and reborn. This triad of capital asset or store value asset, consumable asset, are the main three components of a good economy. All three in tandem generate the necessity the necessary dynamics to prop up in a healthy, robust company. Next, you have the store of value asset, the U.S. dollar. hmm. Then you have the capital asset, being the U.S. treasury bills. Then you have consumable asset, which are the taxes. Currencies are great store of value assets. Nation-state currencies are designed to hold wealth across time, although they could be, do better with this. Currencies are the trust vehicle for communicating and transacting value across space and time. The U.S. dollar has been the most successful currency of all time, that's arguable, and is the SO, no, eh, if you depend on how you look at it, and the store of value asset that dominates the world economy. The U.S. Treasury bills are the foundation to the United States bond market. This bond market is perhaps one of the greatest economic forces in the world as it enables the market to express its trust or distrust of a government's ability to repay its debts. Pay attention to what's been going on with the U.S. T-bonds lately and how individuals have been dumping them. The bond market yields are the fundamental risk-free rates by providing the U.S. government with your store of value assets, the U.S. dollar, with the promise to return your U.S. dollars with an extra percentage that's interest. The U.S. dollar government... Um... let me see what did it say uh, the us government with your the us government then uses the store of value okay taxes are how the us government pays its debts and funds new endeavors the irs represents the entity that collects fees based on a- economic activity to support the us economy the taxes collected the taxes collected party go to the holders of the us treasury bills as the revenue mechanism for paying the interest owed by t bill holders in theory, the U.S. government also pays off T-bill holders via inflation of the U.S. dollar, reducing the dollar's strength as a store-of-value asset. Interesting, and I want something that I want you to key in on. Ether and Ethereum follow this same model. This same structure of an economy is found in Ethereum as well. This time, it's Ether at the center of all of it, and it's Ethereum as the economic system. So you have the store of value being e locked and DeFi, or decentralized finance. You have the capital asset being the staked ETH, and then you have the consumable asset being a gas. Um, Ether is used as a store of value asset, powering open financial applications, which is step one, or the first, um, the first um, uh, category. Ether is also staked to Ethereum to fund economic security and receive risk-free interest, which is the second. And then Ether is used to pay gas, the fees for using the Ethereum economy, as the taxes to pay for the security of the network. Now, let's bring it all together. At the heart of Ethereum is the infrastructure needed for generating an entirely new economy, a new paradigm, a new money matrix, as I like to state. This time, the financial services inside the economy are entirely run by code, trustless and permissionless, and is on the Internet. Now that we have this new economy, we need a new money to run inside of it. If we want to retain the trustlessness and permissionless of of the Ethereum economy, we need a trustless and permissionless currency. The only trustless and permissionless asset in Ethereum is Ether. Ether's role in Ethereum. Ether's role is bandwidth, is bandwidth for permissionless. <coughs> Excuse me. To demand for and use of Ether inside of Ethereum is a function of its demand as a permissionless money inside financial applications. This is finite. Ether. Um, this is finite Ether. In Ethereum, meaning that when Ether is locked inside of an application, the application is using a part of the total sum of Ether. Application is complete for Ether collectively as a portion of all Ether in Ethereum. This is what we call the Ether Locked in DeFi. Bandwidth is referring to ETH Locked in DeFi or how much ETH does this application need to serve the needs of its users. Right now, bandwidth usage is pretty low. There's a lot of room for application growth. and and ETH capture. If more DAI wants to come into existence, for instance, it's going to need to lock up more Ethereum to generate the permissionless. Dai needs one point or one and a half times its value of ETH to support it, meaning that if you want to take out a $100 loan, you got to collateralize over $150 worth of Ethereum. If demand for compound loans increase, compound will require more ETH collateral to back the loans. The same for DYDX. If Uniswap grows in volume and liquidity, it will need more ETH or DAI to grow these liquidity pools. All these things require a portion of total ETH, representing the usage of Ether's bandwidth as a permissionless currency. Growing bandwidth, Ether has plenty of bandwidth for the current state of Ethereum. The market cap of Ether is 20 billion at the time of writing, while total value locked in Open Finance is 600 million. We currently have the bandwidth we need to achieve the current needs of the users. However, Ethereum as an economy leaves much to be desired. If we want Ethereum to be the global financial platform for the Internet, the Internet of value, and the settlement layer for all digital assets, and we want this to be fully permissionless or trustless, then we need Ether to scale to large numbers. Trusted finance and permissioned assets are welcome on Ethereum. They have their own role and function in Ethereum all the same. But the real revolution is totally permissionless financial applications that operate using totally permissionless money. Anything else is a compromise. Um, USD in circulation is $1.7 trillion. Bandwidth needed, 85 uh, times X. We got uh, 85X. Stock market assets is $73 trillion, So we need a 3,650X th- on the bandwidth needed. And the global money supply is $90 trillion. We would need a 4,500X bandwidth needed in order for Ethereum to take care of these, uh, these numbers. So, let's see how we'll eat scale. We need the price of ETH to increase so we can have more capital value for more financial platforms. How does this happen? You have the three-way tug of war. Here is the model for understanding how ETH will uh, appreciate. This is the fundamental value of the proposition for ETH. One, open finance attracts ETH. Open finance applications provide products and services that require ETH lockup. Then you have the ETH stake rate. The alternative to locking ETH in DeFi is to stake your ETH. And then you have the U.S. dollar price, which both of these two forces pull on the U.S. dollar price. If DeFi is fighting for ETH and the ETH stake rate is fighting for ETH, then there's less ETH available for purchase. The only mechanism that the U.S. dollar has to generate its equal and opposite pull on uh, above two forces is to increase its price. The U.S. dollar value of ETH is a representation of the cumulative forces pulled by the ETH stake rate and the products of DeFi, which is fantastic because it means an open, force, open finance becomes more useful. The price of ETH should scale up alongside it to ma- match the demand. <clears throat> the higher demand open finance generates for ETH, the better the ETH stake rate. Collectively, both of these forces pull on the price of ETH to increase the bandwidth of ETH in open finance and the security mechanism that supports the open finance economy. The U.S. dollar doesn't stand a chance so long as DeFi continues to generate more financial applications on top of it. And in closing, I mean, that is, that's one hell of an article and a lot to chew on, especially for individuals that may be new to this space. <coughs> but I ask you to go through it again. Listen, take notes, research anything that you do not comprehend, overstand, or understand, and just get a basic understanding of this new money matrix that we're entering into, this new paradigm, the monetary, banking, the financial system as a whole, comprehend that this is the way in which your life, as well as your children's and your children's children's life, from a monetary perspective, is going, okay, this is the direction that it's headed into, so I hope that this was helpful for the viewer and or the listener, until the next video, until the next podcast, it's the Bitcoin Block Bully, peace, power, and prosperity family, I'm out of here. Peace, power, and prosperity family. you already know what time it is. The Bitcoin Blockbully coming to you once again with an early rising crypto update. Family, we are going to be covering the digital asset, Ether, today. And defining it as just that, an asset. Um, the article that we're going to be reading is entitled... Ether is the best model for money the world has ever seen. And this is being presented by David Hoffman, who is a Ethereum enthusiast. Um, very well put together article. And I'm going to be using this, reading it verbatim, but adding on my own commentary where I feel it may be needed. And making sure that the individual that will be watching this or listening in, depending on the apparatus that you're utilizing to get this information, be it BitPatreon or New Money Matrix podcast. I'm going to make sure, try to make sure that it's easy for the layman to understand what's going on. So, starting off, once again, defining Ether as an asset. And Ether is the cryptocurrency that runs on the Ethereum blockchain. Remember, Ethereum is not itself a cryptocurrency, more so it's the technology that the actual cryptocurrency runs on. So it goes on to state, this article explores Ether's role as an asset in Ethereum. Using data from the last two years of the Ethereum economy, I propose a novel definition for understanding Ether, the asset. Which is the bandwidth for permissionless inside of Ethereum? This article summarized in two paragraphs. So they're gonna give us a summary just in two paragraphs what the whole article is basically gonna be talking about. Ethereum is a foundation for building an alternative internet based financial system. This financial system has the capacity to be completely open and trustless. This new financial system needs a native money to operate. Financial applications in this new landscape need a trustless form of collateral for their operation. And the only trustless asset on Ethereum is Ether. As a result of this demand, Ether has become an economic trifecta, a triple point asset, satisfying all the requirements that a new economy needs all at once. Mm. As a result of this, Ether has become the best model for money that the world has come up with. So these are the opinions of mr. Hoffman there are two assumptions in the analysis of ether and ethereum ethereum 2.0 has enabled ETH staking and EIP 1559 has been implemented which burns ethereum in transactions interesting so part one defining ethereum before we define ether we need to define ethereum ether will be defined how ethereum is used Defining Ethereum has also been difficult. Attempting to define Ethereum feels a bit like defining the Internet in the 80s. No one really knows what is coming. The cool thing about open source technology is that the use and application of the technology evolves and emerges as the community builds and discovers its use case. Applications define the Internet. If you ask Google to define the Internet, you'll get this answer. It's a global computer network providing a variety of information and communication facilities consisting of interconnected networks using standardized communication protocol. Personally, I don't think the definition is helpful. It is technically right, but it's a definition meant for the technically minded. If you were to ask how is the Internet or how does the Internet impact humanity, We need to look at what we are doing on the Internet 99% of the time. That's a big-ass statement, which brings us to these. And for those that are not able to look, they have the symbol pictures of Facebook, Instagram, Google, uh, Wikipedia, YouTube, Twitch, Netflix, Reddit, so on. So they're stating that the Internet is a stack of different technologies with the application at the top layer. While the Internet cannot exist without any one part of the stack, it is the application layer of the Internet that defines how the Internet meaningfully impacts our lives. All the layers below the application layer are a means to an end, to provide products and services to the people. And as you can see, they do have the Ethernet at the hardware layer, then the Ethernet drive is the link layer, IP, network layer, TCP, transport layer, HTTP with the application layer, which is the websites that you and I utilize. And then you have the interface layer, which allows you to interface with the actual site or website that you've come to. So the missing layer is value. The innovation behind the Internet was to make data cheap, available, and infinitely copiable. Copiable. copyable. excuse me. This innovation opened up the world to abundant and cheap information. And humanity is better because of it. However, cheap, available, copyable is the opposite of what money and value is. Money and value is by definition scarce, expensive, and difficult to access. Hmm, Why would money be difficult to access though? Value, even for that matter. When actual value is only in the mind of those that choose to use it. We'll get on with the article though. When Bitcoin solved the internet's double spend problem, it achieved creating internet scarcity. For the first time ever, when you sent something on the internet, you could no longer keep it yourself. However, with with Bitcoin, this is only true if you are sending Bitcoins. The Bitcoin protocol only provides scarcity to Bitcoins, nothing else. This is where Ethereum comes in, a platform for providing digital scarcity for any digital asset. Ethereum gives the power of digital scarcity to more than just its own native currency. Because of Ethereum, which is the technology, digital scarcity can be made for any asset found on its platform. Tokenization in the ERC-20 standard is the printing press for digital scarcity. And tokenization um, relates to taking a asset that is already here. We'll say um, gold, for instance. Having a certain amount of gold that can be verified and backed up that you may presently have or a company may presently have. And creating tokens to represent those units of gold whether it be a gram, a half gram, a half ounce, an ounce, whatever the case may be, and creating what is known as the ERC-20 token to represent those units of gold. So, as a result, Ethereum has become the asset agnostic settlement layer for the Internet. Because of its permissionless and openness, any asset can come to Ethereum and use it for management of its scarcity, and settlement between parties, which is really the, the the definition or example that I just handed you. Now, we're looking at a new stack here where you have Ethernet as the hardware layer. Once again, for those that are not able to see, I'm going to break down what we're looking at. The think layer is the Ethernet drive. The network layer is once again the IP. Then you got the transport layer, which is TCP, which splits up into two different families, You should you could say. Or two different um, protocols. You got Web 2.0, which is Google, Safari, iOS, HTTP. Then you have Web 3.0, which is the Internet of Value, which has the value layer starting with Ethereum. Then the financial layer, which adds up with the application layer, which is on the centralized Web 2.0 is HTTP, the beginning. And on the Web 3.0 is Open Finance. Then you have the interface layer, which is where you actually interact with Safari, Google, Facebook, Instagram. On the interface layer on Web 3.0, this is where you interact with such protocols as um, MetaMask, Zerion, um, Instadap, which are all applications, decentralized applications. Now, Ethereum exists as a new layer on the Internet. It uses the communication protocols below it to create a new network that defines how digital value is managed. Ethereum is the value layer of the Internet. If you go to Ethereum.org, you will find the following definition for Ethereum. Ethereum is a global, open-source platform for decentralized applications. On Ethereum, you can write code that controls digital value, runs exactly as programmed, and is accessible anywhere in the world. Think about that. Anywhere. No, no confines. Once again, permissionless. Right? And decentralized. The applications on the internet define what the internet is. Likewise, the applications on Ethereum will define what Ethereum is. So we're going to get into Ethereum's application layer. The revolution of Ethereum is the establishment of a new application layer on the internet. The internet of Web 2.0 is the internet of centralized databases and centralized data. So we got Facebook. Facebook. Google, Amazon, and their products, which represent the big applications of Web 2.0. Ethereum provides an alternative, a new layer, a value layer that allows for new applications, what they're calling our dApps or decentralized applications. While the internet of Web 2.0 is saturated and dominated by gargantuans, Web 3.0 provides an unclaimed landscape of potential. Value applications and They've got some pictographs under here. I'm not gonna uh, so much go through it's gonna take a lot too much to even break them down but basically what they're showing you is the um, User Network, so you know you start with We'll say uh, let me see where would Their start be it would have to be somewhere uh, beginning with the MetaMask and then going to Maker and then the Compound, then the Augur and so on and so on and so on. And Compound, um, Synthetics Exchange, new Newo. Users shared by uh two protocols, user shared by three protocols, and users shared by four protocols. Got you. So this is just a, a in-depth look for those that are looking. It looks pretty much like almost like a spider web with a bunch of egg sacks. But those egg sacs are the users that are utilizing the different platforms. So. The article goes on to state the financial applications found on top of Ethereum have begun to dominate its application landscape. Led by MakerDAO, which is um, for those that aren't familiar MakerDAO is a platform that allows for the creation of CDPs or collateralized debt positions, whereas you will collateralize or place in a holdings, um, so to say, Ethereum. And then from you holding that Ethereum, you're able to mint a certain amount of DAI stable coins, which are paid one, one to the dollar, against that collateral. So as an example, right? We'll say, you know, so many years ago, you were able to bring gold and silver into the bank. Now, from you bringing that gold and silver into the bank, and this, is, this is a close example, you're able to receive a certain amount of gold or silver certificates. These gold or silver certificates must be turned back in in order to retrieve the gold or silver that these certificates represent. Now, the difference here is that we're actually... Taking these DAI stable coins out as a loan against our Ethereum, which you can collateralize up to, I believe, 150%, meaning that for every $1,000, no, $1,500 in Ethereum that you would place in collateral, you would then be able to withdraw up to 1,000 DAI stable coins. Or for what every $150, you can take out $100 worth of the uh, DAI stable coin against. The Ethereum Collateral. Now, getting back into the um, article, it said led by MakerDAO. And for those that also just to give you more of an explanation, DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. But led by MakerDAO protocol and the establishments of permissionless stability by DAI, Ethereum's permissionless financial network has exploded. Open finance on Ethereum has begun to lock in Ethereum as a global value Settlement platform. Once again, they're calling this a global value settlement platform. The open finance movement that started as a curiosity in 2018 has erupted into what is perhaps Ethereum's main purpose, a network for permissionless financial applications and services. Ethereum's open finance landscape spawns horizontally across its Internet of value. Each application is able to be composable with others, generating endless permutations, transactions between each app. However, Ethereum is not a flat landscape. Financial systems and economies are inherently stratified, and Ethereum is no exception. When the base blockchain at the bottom, excuse me, with the base blockchain at the bottom... Ethereum's applications have stratified themselves in a way that maps onto the legacy financial system. And just so that we have a basic definition of stratified, it means to form or arrange into strata, arrange or classify, or place seeds close together in layers in moist sand or peat to preserve them or to help them germinate. So, stratified sampling is a method of sampling from a population which can be partitioned into subpopulations. In statistical surveys, when subpopulations within an overall population vary, it could be advantages, advantages to sample each subpopulation independently. And that's a little bit too technical, but basically it's putting things in a, uh, arranging things or classifying them. So getting back to ether, right? With the base blockchain at the bottom, Ethereum's applications have arranged themselves in a way that maps onto the legacy financial system. Now, this is one of the reasons that I take the time out and I define words that I may not understand or I believe that the viewer or listener may not understand. So now we can put it in the context of how the word needs to be used. So now we know when we see stratified, it just means to arrange or classify. So once again, rereading this sentence with our newly defined word and replacing the actual word that they have with the def- definitive word, it goes on a state. Once again, with the base blockchain at the bottom being Ethereum, Ethereum's applications have arranged or classified themselves in a way that maps on the legacy financial system. Real interesting now, real easy. So for those that are able to look at the picture, on layer one, we have the each stake rate, which is Ethereum. Layer two, we have the die savings rate and stability fee, which is Maker. Um, No, that was layer one. Layer two, we have borrow and lend rates coming in, bringing compound, new old DYDX. And then layer three, we have the actual application layer where Ethereum is locked into DeFi using Uniswap, SET, or UMA. The money is always at the base of every financial system. Gold is a great permissionless store of value money, except that it is heavy, tangible, and capturable. 90% of the world's supply has been captured by central banks, and the financial products and services below these central banks have all been relegated to fiat money. Because of the capturability of gold, each financial layer under the Federal Reserve must ask permission to the layer above, because it's the layer above it that has the money. (laughs) Interesting. So, at the bottom of this pyramid, we have the people that must ask permission from the businesses, which must ask permission from... Uh, Corporations such as PayPal, Square, Visa, Apple Pay, MasterCard, Venmo, which must ask permission from the big banks being Chase, Citi, Wells, J.P. Morgan, which must ask permission from the Federal Reserve, which gets its power from the trustless backing of the gold derivatives or the commodity of gold. Now, on the other side of things, for those that are looking, we also have another pyramid, though this pyramid upside down, which you have permissionless um, Ethereum at the bottom of the pyramid, being though the tip. Then you have Maker, the permissionless reserve bank. Then you have Compound, Kyber, uh, DYDX, which is permissionless lending and borrowing. Then you have UMA, POA, Uniswap, Foam, Augur, which is permissionless financial applications. <laughs> and then you have Zerion, trustless banking, Instant and Argent, which are permissionless bank accounts. Then you got Real Gitcoin, Haven, Fluidy, Nexus Mutual. The land, which has to do with virtual real estate, which is the permissionless world. Now, this hopefully illustrates the role of a permissionless or programmable store of value, money at the bottom of a new alternative financial stack. Gold is permissionless, and so is Bitcoin. But if the systems that leverage the value of these assets aren't permissionless, then over time, they can capture the asset and generate a permission system in which rent-seeking is enabled. So, stitching it together. If you believe in the illustration of Ethereum thus far, here's how I define it. Or here's how it will be defined. Ethereum is the Internet of Value, the Internet-native global sediment layer for digital assets, and a landscape of permissionless financial applications, which together support a permissionless economy. The key word to focus in on here is permissionless, meaning you do not need permission to interact with a number of these different protocols and applications. Part two, defining Ether. Ether as an asset has been difficult to pin down. The maximum flexibility offered by a Turing Complete Blockchain or Ethereum means that Ether can truly do anything. This makes defining it inside the scope of other asset classes difficult. In order to define Ether as an asset, we need to understand what asset classes are. So I'm I'm loving that they're going to get into this for individuals. So defining asset classes. First, we have the placeholder which is capital assets, an ongoing source of something of value, valued on the basis of net present value of its expected returns. Then you have consumable, transformable assets. You can assume it. You can transform it into another asset. It has economic value, but it does not yield an ongoing stream of value. Then you have store value assets, which cannot be consumed, nor can it generate income. Nevertheless, it has value, and it is a store of value asset. So, under the capital assets, you have equities, bonds, and income producing real estate. Once again, income producing real estate. Under the consumable, transformable assets, you have physical commodities such as grains or energy, population, or products, excuse me. You have precious metals, i.e., gold, silver, platinum, palladium. And then under the store of value assets, you do have incoming producing real estate, income producing real estate. Excuse me, precious metals, currency, and fine art. And this was popularized by Chris Bernersack, um at least in the crypto sphere, by Robert Greer's 1997 paper, "What Is an Asset Class?" Anyways, and um, they proposed three asset superclasses. You have the capital asset, which assets that are productive, produce an ongoing source of value, and generate value, money, and cash flow. Examples include equities, bonds, rentable real estate, or taxi medallions, assets that in some way enable cash flow for the owner. Now, for those that will be listening in and watching this, I want you to understand that they did not add gold into capital assets, Understand they did not add gold into capital assets because gold is look more so like a store of value where you would put your funds if you do not, if you want to hedge them against an unsteady market, you know, um, interest rates are being cut or a a global currency or excuse me, not global, a... um. Mm -hmm. A country's currency may be failing, so they're looking for where can I put this value, this unit value, whereas it's not going to be affected. And that's why they look at precious metals, gold, silver. But you do not invest, in my opinion, in those precious metals to get rich. (laughs) That's not the goal. You know what I mean? It's more so as a hedge to keep your value at a steady, um, steady level. Next, we have transformable. Consumable, consumable assets, which you can consume it and burn it, which is a one time use. You can transform it into another wallet, excuse me, another asset or its consumption produces economic yield. Now, these are the examples that include gold, oil, commodities like wheat and coffee or energy. These types of assets are generally used in the industry to produce some sort of outcome that is economically beneficial. Think about gold plating in electronics, the gasoline in a car, or the coffee beans in a coffee machine. Next you have store of value assets, which cannot be consumed. Value persists across time and space, and it's scarce. And these examples include gold, currencies, real estate, art, or bitcoins. This is the most simple asset class, but perhaps the most important. These types of assets must be scarce and hard to produce, duplicate, and copy. They should be desired, desirable, ubiquitously across the globe. They are the assets that benefit from global trust and a perceived value of assets. Now, when we discuss monetary premium, we are discussing store of value assets, or SOV assets. You may have noticed that some assets fall into more than one category. Real estate properties are great stores of value and can also rent them to generate cash flows. Likewise, gold is an important component in industry products due to its ability to carry electronic signals, electrical signals, and resistance to decay. DK, excuse me. It's also been the greatest store of value asset humanity has ever seen. Speaking on gold once again. So up until now, Ether has all three asset classes. Ether fits perfectly into all three asset classes depending on the context. Ether can be operating as any three of the above asset classes and even all three at once. So let's look at Ether as a capital asset. In its capital asset form. Ether is a share of the Ethereum network, a claim on Ethereum's fees, and the right to produce work for Ethereum. So, once again, it's a share of the Ethereum network, much like Apple, Starbucks, coffee, Amazon, Google. It's a claim on Ethereum's fees, much like bonds. And it's a right to produce work for Ethereum. Which... Hmm, how would I describe that? Almost like a license, to be honest, where you have permission by holding this um entity, you have permission to operate within a certain landscape or by certain guidelines. Now, a share in Ethereum. The Ethereum Network is a decentralized institution. The Ethereum network produces products and services for its internet of value in an attempt to grow its network, grow its users to capture more value. The better products and services it creates, MakerDAO, Compound, DYDX, and Augur, the most customers there are for Ethereum. Ethereum's customers are both the applications found on top of it, as well as the users of those applications. Next, we have a claim on Ethereum's fees. In order to keep the network running, Ethereum needs to pay its workers. These workers come in the form of validators, those that make sure that all user customers are playing for the terms of service of Ethereum. Ethereum's TOS follows the rules of EVM, don't double spend. These fees are paid to the workers for their labor, but also act as a wall that protects Ethereum. The height of the wall is highly correlated with the total fees produced by the network. The height of the wall is the cost of attacking Ethereum. Next you have the right to produce. Owning Ethereum is owning the right to produce work and collect the fees of Ethereum. Ether is the mechanism for ensuring incentive alignment between the Ethereum network and its workers. All workers must own ETH in order to provide work for Ethereum. If you want to be an employee of the Ethereum network and be paid for your services, You must own ETH to make sure that you are aligned with the network. And I'm glad that they're getting into this because I've been asked many times where does the value of such cryptocurrencies come from. And they're actually giving you a very, very, very nice use case of Ethereum and where the value comes from, or Ether in this sense. So these are the components of Ether that make it a capital asset. When staked, ETH is a productive asset for its owners. Ether produces more of itself for the owner that stakes it and does the work for Ethereum. The current ETH 2.0 spec has an issuance schedule that is dynamic. Fewer total ETH stakers mean that the ETH stakers are paid comparatively more. This is is to incentivize more ETH stakers to come and provide work security to Ethereum. When When more ETH stakers stake their ETH, Ethereum pays each staker less, as more total security is being provided and therefore further security is not as needed. So, it's, it's that, I like that example. That's pretty much like you have a budget to work with, right? And, you know, first you start off with a small team. So, it's easier to possibly pay those small teams higher amounts. As you get to adding on more individuals to this, this project, it starts to, now you got to spread that money out more, right? So, now you have to pay each individual, keep it balanced, but each individual has to take a smaller amount or a smaller cut because you have less money to go around. Um... Here is the capital asset return rate based on different numbers of ETH being staked. As a sought-after $10 million staking rate, ETH stakers will receive 5.72% yearly return on their Ethereum. Now, this is not a dollar amount. This is not a dollar amount. This is the amount 5.72% as it compares to the amount of Ethereum you have. So, if Ethereum was the dollar. So 100 Ethereum would get you 5.7 Ethereum at the end of the year, right? Just like $1 would get you $5.72. No, excuse me, $100 would get you $5.72 at the end of the year, being it's only 5.72% of that 100. So, however, that's not the only way that ETH stakers are paid. The above return rate is just for the new ETH issuance. ETH stakers also receive a portion of the fees paid to the network. Here are Ethereum's top paying user customers on September 18th. The fees collected are added on top network issuance and paid to the workers of Ethereum. So, um, the one individual had 3.3K Ethereum spent, average GUI was 14, and the USD value was $616,000. Interesting. Let me see. One hundred sixty-five thousand twenty-four hour dollar revenue makes five million dollars in one month revenue. Um, seven hundred and twenty-nine Ethereum in a twenty-four hour revenue equal twenty-three thousand nine hundred and seventy-one Ethereum in one month revenue. So, Ether is a consumable, transformable, transformable asset. Consumable, transformable assets come in many forms. The most apparent asset in this class isn't one particular asset itself. But rather, a number of assets that produce this thing. That thing is energy. Energy is a consumable asset that we all use to transform things into the world around us. Energy is how raw earth ore turns into the steel inside of a skyscraper or the frame of a car. Energy is how elevators move people to their office and how we transact and do business on our computers or phones. It is the power behind cargo ships creating worldwide commerce. It is the heat in our ovens that turn raw food into edible meals. Imagine a world without energy. Energy makes the world go round. Without energy, we would not be able to turn useless things into useful things. This demand for an energy substrat is what gives oil its global value. Why electric cars are hot topics. And why batteries are so goddamn expensive, in their words. Energy is the economic substrat that powers the world economy. Ether is the economic substrat for the internet. And let's real quick. Substrat is defined as an underlying substance or layer. So the surface or material on or from which an organism lives, grows, or obtains its nourishment. The substance on which all enzymes act. So, we're looking at an underlying substance or a layer in this context. So, Ether, ether is the economic layer for the Internet. Ether's original definition, gas for Ethereum, illustrates this well. The consumption of Ether is the cost of turning the economic wheels inside of Ethereum. Anytime any activity is done, Ether is consumed. So, that means anytime an asset is moved, anytime a loan is generated, Anytime an exchange is made, anytime a purchase is executed, or anytime a DAO, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, is started, Ether is consumed. And for those that have been in the space for a while, we know that those um, gas comes in the form of a contract, whereas everything that runs on the Ethereum network is a smart contract. Now, one of the laws to contract is all contract is voluntary. Meaning that you have the option to opt in or opt out of the contract that Ethereum presents to you or that the network will present to you. So, anytime you go to do a transaction on the Ethereum network, it does need permission. There is just no one clicking it, it needs permission. And you are the individual that gives it that permission. We're going to get into Ether is a store of value asset. If you paid attention to the ETH lock and DeFi metric, you paying attention to Ether as a store of value asset. Being locked is referring to how it is being used as a collateral for something. It wouldn't be locked if it didn't have a commitment to act as a store that backs some sort of agreement, contract, or asset on Ethereum. Ether, as a permissionless global asset is the vehicle for generating permissionless financial institutions on Ethereum. We've called these permissionless financial institutions DAPs and the economic network. They create DeFi or open finance. And DeFi basically stands for decentralized finance, whereas you are able to finance without the use or need of a counterparty or, um, Middleman. So that, just as a quick example, is what is meant when you see the term DeFi. If Ether wasn't permissionless or if these open finance applications on Ethereum can ran, excuse me, ran on permissionless collateral, such as centralized stable coins or tokenized gold, then they wouldn't be fully permissionless systems. We would have to trust in the centralized institutions that issue the on-chain asset, that their off-chain assets are legit, and that they will honor all redeemability. Thankfully, Ether is permissionless, so we don't have this problem. If we use Ether as collateral inside of DeFi and open finance. We're going to get into Ethereum's first DAP, which is MakerDAO. Not first, as in first in time. First is in the first order of operations. MakerDAO is crucial to the development of open finance on Ethereum. Stability is crucial for finance. And without a stable reference point to Ether, many of the financial applications on Ethereum simply would be able to operate. Hmm. Without a stable reference point on many of the financial applications on Ethereum simply, maybe they meant to say it wouldn't be able to operate. Hmm. Platforms like Compound, DYDX, or set protocol all require a stable currency in order for their applications to function. There are plenty of plenty of stable coins on Ethereum, but there is only one permissionless one. Dai is the only native stable coin on Ethereum, and it achieves that nativity by being backed by the only trustless asset on Ethereum, which is Ether. So I'm liking how they're breaking this down right now. Understand, USDT, BUSD, TrueUSD. USDC, GUSD, which is Gemini um, United States dollar, uh, Binance United States dollar, True USD United States dollar, United States dollar tether, United States dollar coin, and so on and so on and so on. Those are permissioned stable coins, meaning that they have a centralized institution behind them that is guaranteeing the redeemability of those fiat dollars to the digital asset that is representing it, whereas with DAI, there is no centralized institute that holds the backing to the DAI stablecoin. It is you locking up your own Ethereum that allows you to even print these dollars. Now, it goes on to say DAI achieves its value by the store value function on Ether as it achieves its permissionless from its over-collateralization. Ether makes DAI permissionless. Permissionless stability enables permissionless finance. Having a permissionless stablecoin is really important. In addition to providing a stable foundation to build finance upon, if you want the financial structure on top of that function or excuse me, that foundation to be permissionless, you need the foundation to be permissionless. If DeFi all ran on USDC, we would all be trusting Circle with their management of our funds. Dai is the only stablecoin that cannot be removed. Revoked or burned from a user's wallet via a central authority. This is why open finance applications can get assurances when building their application with Dai. If Dai runs in their application, no central party can remove it from their application. And they're showing you a, a nice um, description of that now. Whereas they have the Dai coming out of Maker die Maker DAO, excuse me, and then going on up um, the different. Levels from Permissionless Reserve Bank to Permissionless Lending and Borrowing, Permissionless Financial Application, Permissionless Bank Accounts, all the way up to to the Permissionless world. Permissionless Stablecoin supports Permissionless Finance, and this is the new money for the new economy. All this is based off Ether as a Permissionless Programmable Store of Value Asset. Next, we're going to get into Compound. Compound Finance is the borrowing lending application for Ethereum. It's a financial primitive and a crucial component in the financial stack of Ethereum. Compound is an application that pulls borrowers and lenders together and matches the demand supply of each party with the variable interest rate. This produces the die borrow rate and die supply rate, or the cost of borrowing die and the interest received from lending die. You can check the rates at loanscan.io for those that are interested. Compound is a trustless excuse me, compound is trustless because of collateral. Collateral is what makes compound a permissionless platform. Borrowers must over-collateralize their loan in order for lenders to be given assurances that there is always money in the bank for them to withdraw. In other words, trustlessness. Below is a chart that has two lines. In red, the total value of all collateral locked in compound, denominated in ETH. In purple, the total number of ETH locked as collateral. The discrepancy between ETH locked and the total value lot is a bunch of rep being used as collateral, which is um, Augur, the Augur token. The vast majority, and honestly, okay, so they don't even have the, um, they're speaking on the chart. Ah, oh, okay, the chart's all the way down here. Okay. I'm about to say they're speaking on the chart that, that is not specifically right there. But um, the vast majority of collateral, And Compound is Ether. So borrowers are locking up ETH to be the collateral for the loan. In this scenario, Ether is being used as a store of value asset, an asset that is perceived by the market to hold its value across time, as the collateral for a permissionless loan. This permissionless collateral is what powers the lending side of Compound, as the Compound application ensures over-collateralization and auto-liquidation of the collateral from borrowers. Lenders don't have to trust borrowers. The Compound application removes trust from the equation. Compound does this by using Ethereum as a store of value and using Ether's programmability programmability to enable trust-removed borrowing and lending. Now, DYDX is a platform for margin trading, lending, and borrowing. DYDX runs on a smart contract on the Ethereum and allows users to trade with no intermediaries. DYDX provides its services to users by requiring a store value collateral in order to borrow or trade on margin. And margin means borrowed funds. So um, if you're using a margin account and you're able to use leverage up to, we'll say, 5X. For every $1, it's $5 that you're trading with. For every $100, it's 500 For every $1,000, it's $5,000. So um, the collateral can theoretically be anything. And DYDX has enabled USDC as collateral. However, as you can see in the chart below, the vast majority of collateral inside DYDX is Ether. Ether is the primary store of value collateral that's used in DYDX. The combination of DYDX smart contracts and a permissionless SOV um, store of value programmable asset like ETH enable DYDX's permissionless and trustlessness as a financial application. And you can see... The demand of inside the demand inside of DAI is 94% ether or DAI. And remember, DAI is just a token that represents collateralized ether. So the store of value makes DYDX permissionless and trustless. Now we have Uniswap, which ether powers Uniswap. The same pattern holds true for the Uniswap exchange. Whereas in order to fund the liquidity pool, you have to put an equal amount of Ethereum against the, uh, uh, the value of coins that you want to add, to the li- for, uh, add liquidity to. So Uniswap, Ex- Uniswap Exchange operates by having two pools of collateral for any token pair. In version one of Uniswap, all token pairs trade against store value Ether. It's Ether role as a store of value that makes it such a great collateral for all token trading pairs to trade against. In version two of Uniswap, maybe by the end of 2019, Uniswap will enable any token to any token trading pairs. And I'm willing to be the next, and I'm willing to be the next use case collateral. And I'm willing the next use collateral will be DAI, Ether stablecoin. Ether is the store of value for open finance. Ten years after their inception, Only one use case for blockchain has been discovered. The permissionless management of value across the internet. Open finance is a new fertile landscape for the new financial institutions. In the open finance landscape, institutions are autonomous, humanless, contracts on Ethereum. And from what we can see so far in DeFi is that they use ETH as the underlying store of value asset for their application. While I expect further assets to be able to come to open finance and act as collateral, collateralized stable coins, gold and vaults, securities and treasuries, etc., I expect Ether and DAI will remain a significant majority of collateral for open finance applications. Open finance applications that leverage ETH and DAI are retaining full permissionless. If open finance applications use off-chain trusted assets, then they are acting as a hybrid open finance application with trusted assets, which is fine. But it's not as cool as fully trustless, fully permissionless applications that leverage trustless ETH and DAI. So, ETH, the triple point asset. Depending on the context, ETH acts as any of the three major asset superclasses staked Ethereum equals a capital asset, consumed Ethereum is consumable or transformable, transformable assets, and ETH locked in DeFi as a store of value ETH or store of value asset. ETH is the first asset to over to ever transcend all three asset classes that the, the writer knows of anyways. This is great for ether. Money is something that is by definition flexible. Money is what you need to need it to be when you need it to be that thing and Ether fits into all three major frameworks for what a valuable asset should be. The story doesn't end here, however. The triple point is a reference to thermodynamics. Thermodynamics. In thermodynamics, the triple point of a substance is the temperature and pressure at which the three phases of solid of that substance coexist in thermodynamic equilibrium. So that's the triple point where you got a solid phase, a liquid phase, and a vapor phase. Phases of matter are usually distinct. Either you're a solid, liquid, or a gas. However, if things are balanced just right you can at the triple point where all three phases exist all at once Superfluid collateral in open finance what happens when collateral becomes liquid the article this article illustrates the fluid fluidity fluidity, flu, fluidity of collateral inside of open finance applications on ethereum number 1 ether is used as a store of value inside maker data produced DAI. Then ETH and DAI are collateral on Uniswap to produce the Uniswap pool Share token. Now, this new ERC-20 has the value of one part ETH and one part DAI, which are the native store value assets in Ethereum. And then five, you use this new store value token inside Compound as the collateral for a loan. Ether locked inside of Uniswap generates a new token that represents its value, which is then relocked inside of Compound. The same ether that is collateral for Uniswap is used as collateral for Compound. Let's put this into the asset definition as we defined above. Store of value ETH was put inside Maker data produce DAI. Store of value DAI plus ETH was put inside Uniswap to produce the Uniswap pool share token. <laughs> the Uniswap pool share token is an asset that is both a store of value and a capital asset. Uniswap pool share token are collateralized by the assets that back them, but they also receive fees from the volume of exchange they back. Uniswap exchanges charge 0.3% fees. This means that the Uniswap pool share token increases in value as it collects fees from Uniswap. Uniswap pool share tokens are therefore both store value assets and capital assets at the same time. Next, you have the new token, which is both a store value and a capital asset, deposited into Compound as collateral for a loan. So now it's acting as a store value asset that backs the loan. So it's a store of value, ETH plus die, that backs the Uniswap pool share token, store of value plus capital asset, that backs the compound loan, store of value plus capital asset, times the store of value. Theoretically, and I notice this is getting kind of complicated. You may have to listen to it a couple of times, take notes. Theoretically, this could be done as, lending, as a lending tool and compound rather than a borrowing tool. So if you replace step four with a new step, you get... You are allowing Uniswap pool share tokens to be borrowed in Compound and receive interest payments denominated in the Uniswap pool share token from the borrowers. So now we have a store of value plus a capital asset that is being lent out and collecting fees, making it as a store of value plus plus a capital asset times a capital asset. This whole process requires eight total transactions. Every time economic activities occur on Ethereum, Ether is consumed. While Ether was being transformed into some permutation of a capital plus store value asset, Ether is being consumed as the economic substrat of Ethereum. In other words, Ether is operating operating as this hybrid store value capital asset, while Ether is also being consumed to pay for the transformation of the plain old ETH into the compound loan that's collateralized by a Uniswap pool share token. Ether is the first asset in history to operate as all three types. And this is we're talking about the trifecta or the um, triple point asset because it has the capacity to be all three at once, meaning it can be a capital asset, a store of value and a consumable and transformable um, asset. So the triad of capital asset, store of value asset and consumable asset are the main three components of a good economy. All three in tandem generate the necessary dynamics to prop up in a healthy and robust economy. So, under here, you have a store of value. At the top of the pyramid, you have the United States dollar. Below that, you have bonds to your left and the IRS to the right. So, you have a store of value being the dollar, capital asset being a bond, and a consumable asset being the IRS. So, the store of value is uh, the U.S. dollar. Oh, the capital asset is the U.S. Treasury bill or Treasury bond a consumable asset out of taxes. Currencies are great store of value assets. Nation state currencies are designed to hold wealth across time. Although they could do better at this. Perhaps significantly better. Which I actually disagree with the the fact that they, are, they hold value across time. If you look at the United States dollar. Hell over the last 30 years it's lost almost 90% of its value. So don't know if I agree with that one. Currencies are the trust vehicle for communicating and transacting value across space and time. I can agree with that. The U.S. dollar has been the most successful currency of all time and is a store-of-value asset that dominates the world economy. U.S. Treasury bills are the foundation of the United States bond market. The U.S. bond market is perhaps one of the greatest economic forces in the world as it enables the market to express its trust or distrust of a government's ability to repay its debts. Pay attention to that again. I'm going to read that again. The bond market enables the market to express its trust... Or distrust of a government's ability to pay its debt. And if you have been paying attention, a lot of world um, economies or world powers have been dumping the United States bonds. So pay attention to that. That means there's distrust in the government's ability to pay its debts back. The bond market yields are the fundamental risk-free rates by providing the U.S. government with your store of value asset, the U.S. dollar, with the promise to return your, your U.S. dollars with an extra percentage interest. The U.S. government then uses that value to secure the U.S. economy. Taxes are, however, the U.S. government are how the U.S. government pays its debts and funds new endeavors. The IRS represents the entity that collects fees based on economic activity to support the U.S. economy. The taxes collected partly go to the holders of the U.S. Treasury bills as the revenue mechanism for paying the interest owed by T-bill holders. In theory... The US government also pays off T-bill holders via inflation of the US dollar, reducing the dollar strength as a store of value asset. Glad they added that. Ether and Ethereum follow the same model. This same structure of the economy is found in Ethereum as well. This time it's Ether at the center of it all, and it's Ethereum as the economic system. The store of value, or ETH in finance, is at top. Now to your left you have stake Ethereum and to the right you have gas. So you got the United States dollar, right? The T-bills, which is the staked ETH, and then the taxes, which is the gas. As a, as a, I like that. Store value is ETH locked in DeFi. Capital asset is staked ETH, and the consumable asset is the gas. So Ether is used as a store of value asset powering open finance applications. Ether is staked to Ethereum to fund economic security and receive risk-free interest. Ether is used to pay gas. The fees for using the Ethereum economy as the taxes to pay for the security of the network. Now let's bring it all together. At the heart of the Ethereum. at the heart of Ethereum is the infrastructure needed for generating an entirely new economy. This time, the financial services inside this economy are entirely ran by code, trustless and permissionless, and it's on the Internet. Now that we have this new economy, we need a new money to run inside of it. If we want to retrain the trustlessness and permissionless of the Ethereum economy, we need a trustless and permissionless currency. The only trustless and permissionless currency asset in Ethereum is Ether. Ether's role in Ethereum. Ether is bandwidth for permissionless. The demand for and use of Ether inside of Ethereum is a function of its demand as a permissionless money inside financial applications. There is finite or Finite, Ether and Ethereum. Meaning that when Ether is locked inside an application, the application is using up a part of the total sum of Ether. Applications complete for Ether collectively use, for, for Ether collectively use a portion of all Ether and Ethereum. This is what we call the ETH locked in DeFi. So, um, let me see. I guess it's showing eight, 80 million right now locked in DAI. 114 million in Compound, 21 million in DYDX, and 17 million within Uniswap. So, total permissionless bandwidth available 108 million to 20 billion. Total bandwidth used 2.2 million to 500 million, 21%. Bandwidth is referring to the ETH locked in DeFi, or how much ETH does this application need to serve the need of its users? Right now, bandwidth usage is pretty low. There's a lot of room for application growth in ETH capture. If more die wants to come into existence, it's existence going to need to lock up more Ethereum to generate the permissionless. Each DAI needs 1.5x its value of ETH to support it, or 150%. If demand for compound loans increase, compound will require more ETH collateral to back the loans. Same for DYDX. If Uniswap grows in volume and liquidity, it will need more ETH or die to grow these liquidity pools. All these things require a portion of total ETH, representing the usage of Ether's bandwidth as a permissionless currency. Now, growing the bandwidth. Ether has plenty of bandwidth for the current state of Ethereum. The market cap of Ether is 20 billion at the time of writing, with total value locked in open finance is 60 million. We currently have the bandwidth we need to achieve the current needs of the users. However, Ethereum as an economy leaves much to be desired. If we want Ethereum to be the global financial platform for the Internet, the Internet, excuse me, the Internet of value and the global sediment layer for all digital assets. And we want this to be financed. We want this to be fully permissionless and trustless. Then we need Ether to scale to large numbers. Trusted finance and permission assets are welcomed on Ethereum, and they have their role and function in Ethereum all the same. But the revolution, the real revolution, is totally permissionless financial applications that operate using totally permissionless money. Anything else is a compromise. There are one, there is thirty seventy three trillion in stock. Well, no, there is one point seven trillion USD in circulation. If you want Ethereum to match that demand, the price of Ether will have to grow by 85 times. There are 73 trillion in stock market assets. If we want to generate permissionless synthetics of all these assets on Ethereum, they need to collateralize, they need to be collateralized by ETH, which will require ETH price to increase by 3,650 uh, times. The same is true for the global money supply. If we want permissionless, if we want a permissionless world where humans communicate value through a trustless platform, The value of Ether needs to scale to meet this demand. Right now, Ether and Ethereum serve the needs of a small niche population of dedicated uh, believers, and the value of Ether is high enough to do so. However, if you want to onboard the next 1 million or 1 billion users to Ethereum, Ether will have to increase in price to support the, the economic activity required by permissionless, trustless financial applications. How will ETH scale? We need the price of ETH to increase so we can have more capital available for more financial platforms, and they got a three-way tug of war in order how to do this. So ETH lockup and DeFi pull from uh, the ETH stake rate and the USD price. So, um, in closing, um, Open Finance attracts ETH. Um, open Finance applications provide products and services that require ETH lockup. The ETH stake rate, the application to lock up your ETH and DeFi, is to stake your ETH, and then the U.S. dollar price. Both of these two forces pull on the U.S. dollar price. If DeFi is fighting for ETH and the ETH stake rate is fighting for ETH, then there's less ETH available for purchase. The only mechanism that the U.S. dollar has to generate is equal and opposite pull on the above two forces is to increase its price. The U.S. dollar value of ETH is the representation of the cum- 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 cumulative cumulative forces pulled by the ETH stake rate and the products of ETH, which is fantastic because it means as open finance becomes more useful, the price of ETH should scale up alongside it to match the demand. The higher demand open finance generates for ETH, the better the ETH stake rate. Collectively, both of these forces pull on the price of ETH to increase the bandwidth of Ether in open finance and a security mechanism that supports the open economy. The U.S. dollar doesn't stand a chance so long as DeFi continues to generate more financial applications on top of it.